0: Gentlemen, uh, can I please have your attention, Daniel (laughs) it. Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is not a normal uh, Remnant podcast. As some of you may recall, I floated this idea, uh, somewhat inspired by the podcast um, Revolutions, of doing supplementals as they call them on the revolutions podcast where i just take a specific topic um, particularly something i have written about and i try to expand on it or i i are or, or basically just read something that i've written um in a more formal way without doing the sort of madcap weird uh chasing uh, my tail through my brain of the the solo remnant podcast that i usually do on fridays and so i'm going to give this a try if it's usually popular maybe i'll do more of them if it's if it's not uh you know lesson learned that's fine by me um and um i am going to be reading from stuff uh most of this is is sort of uh, edited down from um the chapter on social darwinism that i did for Uh, tyranny of cliches, um, an underrated book with a terrible title. And, um, I'll be freelancing some of this stuff because I think, uh, some of it is a little dated, but, uh, given that this is supposed to be an evergreen thing, it doesn't really matter that much. Um, let me say one of the reasons why I pick social Darwinism is it's because it's something I'm sort of fascinated with, um, as an intellectual phenomenon, um, and sort of a, a, exercise in myth-making and um and also because i think that's going to be the next shoe to drop on a lot of the right wingers who are already talking about robber barons and you know oligarchs and all of that kind of thing and it just seems to me as a, a pretty easy prediction that once you start embracing a lot of these um modes of thought about how you talk about capitalism you're eventually going to start um, talking about social Darwinism because, um, that's just how that logic works. And, um, but we'll talk about robber barons. If anyway, if this thing works, I can do robber barons another time because that's another fun and exciting thing to talk about. And in fact, uh, the original version of this chapter had, I don't know, like eight paragraphs about robber barons. I cut them out from now because I think I want to do a standalone about robber barons down the road and I've written about them, but they will come up. Briefly in here. Anyway, um, enough of this preamble stuff. Uh, let me know what you think and um, let's get going. So, uh, let me just start with a um, quote from Robert Reich, who I could do a great supplemental on, by the way. Um, the conservative movement, as its progenitors like to call it, is now mounting a full throttled attack on Darwinism, even as it has thoroughly embraced Darwin's bastard child. Social Darwinism. Okay, so what is social Darwinism? Well, I'd say it's social Darwinism isn't simply a cliche. It's it's like magic, an alchemist trick that transmogrifies the gold of freedom into the lead of Hitlerism. Leading intellectuals and journalists cavalierly employ it as a placeholder for all bad things having to do with genetics, fascism, racism, evolution, free markets, or any human behavior that might be seen as callousness of a right-wing sort. Dropping social Darwinism into a conversation is like flinging around Eastern philosophy mumbo-jumbo. Zen, Tao, Chi, etc. Everyone recognizes the words. Nobody really knows what they mean yeah, I understand that some people really know what they mean, but I think the people who really know what Zen and and Tao and and Qi and all these kinds of things would be the first people to agree with me that a lot of people use those kinds of terms without knowing what they mean. Mario Cuomo in his famous 1984 Democratic Convention keynote speech, which quote, electrified and galvanized and inspired Democrats who went on to lose 49 states in the general election, declared that, quote, President Reagan told us from the very beginning that he believed in a kind of social Darwinism. Walter Mondale, the Democratic nominee that year, insisted that Reagan preferred social Darwinism over social decency. The same drum beats steadily 20 years later. It's called the Ownership Society in Washington, then Senator Barack Obama explained in 2005. But in our past, there's been another term for it, social Darwinism every man or woman for himself or herself. In 2012, then-President Obama said that the House Republican budget is nothing but, quote, thinly-veiled social Darwinism. It is, he added, a Trojan horse hiding within it a radical vision that is antithetical to our entire history as a land of opportunity, unquote. So this all goes back, of course, to Herbert Spencer. I shouldn't say, of course, because a lot of people don't know who Herbert Spencer was these days, but, well, he's he's dead these days, but a lot of people these days don't know who Herbert Spencer was. Um, he's widely held to be the uh, founder of social Darwinism. Uh, he was, Spencer was an economist and a statistician and a philosopher, and um, as we're about to see, he was not, in fact, the founder of social Darwinism. A writer for one British paper insists, insists Spencer was, quote, a downright evil man whose passion for eugenics and elimination made him the daydreamer of things to come, unquote. Edwin Black, in his history of eugenics, War Against the Weak, writes that Spencer, quote, completely denounced charity and instead extolled the purifying elimination of the unfit. The unfit, he argued, were predestined by their nature to an existence of downwardly spiraling degradation. Such attacks are beyond common, as the historian George H. Smith has chronicled for years, but perhaps the most telling come from Richard L. Schoenwald's psychological autopsy of Spencer in the 1968 summer issue of that esteemed journal, Victorian Studies, in which the historian reveals that Spencer's twisted and deformed worldview stemmed from his fascination with literally. Okay, people are going to want to pay a little close attention to this because it's really, um, as the social scientists say, amazeballs. Starting with Spencer's childhood, Schoenwald concluded that, quote, and this is a quote, Spencer's self-esteem had been undermined hopelessly in the oral and anal stages of his development. He could commit himself only to paper, not to a woman, Schoenwald wrote. As a baby, Spencer rejoiced in his ability to, quote, create excrement, unquote. He never forgave his parents' efforts at toilet training, which revoked, quote, the anal freedom in which he had glorified, unquote. Schoenwald says, quote, this fearful attack from behind, unquote, left permanent scars, which is why, for example, Spencer would one day oppose public sanitation regulation, because, quote, he saw in sanitary reform an attack on his magical anal producing powers, unquote. Okay, so just to be clear, the Schoenwald guy is not a very important guy as far as I can tell, but it was a great example of sort of Freudian uh, buffoonery and um, I thought it was a great passage. Anyway, to put it mildly, there's something about Herbert Spencer and social Darwinism that gets under the skin of a lot of people. So let's clear the brush away. Herbert Spencer, the British author, sociologist, and reputed creator of social Darwinism, did not coin the term social Darwinism. He was not a Darwinist. He had a separate theory of evolution. He was a Lamarckian, I believe, which is is, related to um, evolution. uh, But it's basically the belief that uh, that acquired habits or traits are heritable. Um, We can talk about that some other time. Anyway, he never called himself a social Darwinist. Neither the term social Darwinist nor the name Darwin appear in his 1851 book with a very toothy name, Social Statics, or the Conditions Essential to Happiness Specified and the First of Them Developed. That book laid out his theory of the fittest. Uh, Yale sociologist William Graham Sumner, Spencer's purported junior partner in social Darwinism, did not call himself a social Darwinist either, nor was he particularly indebted to Darwinism. Simply put, there was no intellectual movement, at least not in America or Britain, called social Darwinism, and the evil views attributed to so-called social Darwinists were not held by its alleged founders. A survey of all of the leading English-language academic journals from the mid-1800s until 1937 produced not a single citation, mention, or argument that links Spencer— who was dead by 1903, and Summer, who was dead by 1910, to an intellectual movement called social Darwinism. Even more amazing, in the entire body of Anglo American scholarly publications spanning more than a century, there is only one article that actually advocates rather than criticizes something called social Darwinism. And let me leave the page again here for a second. This is an important point. There are so many of these phrases that come up in American and British history that, um, uh, were intended as insults or intended as criticisms that then get labeled, get attached to the criticized, even though they were not the labels or the terms that they accepted. I mean, sometimes eventually you come around and accept them. Like there were the, the levelers. And then there were like the true levelers in in the English civil war period, um, that was an ad hominem thing. I think the Cavaliers was an ad hominem thing. Uh, neoconservatism was not intended to be neoconservatism was originally an insult that eventually mostly through Irving crystal, uh, they decided, well, let's just own it. Uh, this kind of thing happens all the time. And that's the point is that social Darwinism was this label that was applied to, uh, essentially libertarianism. And, uh, it's sort of super, duck around in the intellectual bloodstream any sense ever ever since all right back to the written word let me repeat that despite the fact that america's foremost historians politicians and journalists routinely invoke and demonize the intellectual movement called social darwinism pioneered by herbert spencer there is only one academic publication or article that clearly and unequivocally advocates for something called social darwinism And it not only wasn't written by Spencer, it doesn't mention him either. And yet we are told by no less than the Oxford English Dictionary that social Darwinism is quote, the theory that societies, classes, and races are subject to and the product of of Darwinian laws of natural selection, often used to justify political conservatism, imperialism, and racism. And yet the OED fails to identify even a single use by a proponent of the idea. It's an amazing triumph of intellectual propaganda. Everyone knows that conservatives believe in social Darwinism, but no one can point to a social Darwinist. Everyone knows that Herbert Spencer founded social Darwinism, but he did no such thing. It's like those famous help wanted signs that that said no Irish need apply here um that everyone remembers but historians have never found proof of i probably should have just cut that line for this uh because i have learned since then that uh this was a really heated historical debate over the last about ending about uh, about 2015 um because the existing databases really didn't find much evidence of these no irish need apply signs and um and and wanted signs in newspapers and that kind of thing. And then it turned out that the databases were incomplete and they found a lot more of them. So in fact, there were uh, no Irish need apply signs. So I just wanted to correct what I wrote um, in the book um, to account for the new information. Anyway, but wait, it gets even more vexing. Social Darwinism is routinely used to describe both Hitler's genocidal racism and eugenic policies as well as mainstream American libertarianism. You too, can be a social Darwinist if you believe in the small government and the free market, or if you believe in hurting the lesser races and the enfeebled into camps. So how do we explain this? How can you be both the ultimate interventionist in the economy and the society and be, a, i.e., a Nazi? Or a radical libertarian who doesn't think the government is qualified to collect your garbage, and also be a social Darwinist, because it seems like the two things, those two Venn diagrams, wouldn't overlap a lot. So, how do we explain it? Let's start with its eugenic connotations. One important part of the answer is that social Darwinism as a phrase was born in Europe, and over there, it was often used as an ugly and bastardized Nietzschean racial philosophy of the strong against the weak. Meanwhile, in America, It became associated with figures like Spencer and Sumner who were philosophical, radical individualists, or what today we would probably call libertarians. In a sense, this shift is a reversal of what happened to the word liberal when it crossed the Atlantic Ocean. In Europe, where the word originated, liberal still means something like libertarian, but in the United States, liberal has come to mean a moderately left-wing status. That switcheroo took place in the 1920s and the early 1930s because progressives and later communists had so poisoned the word progressive that they had to change their brand. And I've written about that a lot. We can do a history of progressive, the, these labels for a supplemental, if I ever do this again. Another piece of the puzzle stems from the fact that liberals overly revered Darwin, while many conservatives do not revere him enough, alas. And since he must not be blamed for anything bad done in the name of evolutionary theory, they peeled, off the pack that ha- they peeled off from the pack that handful of 19th century intellectuals and thinkers who were actual libertarians and blamed them for any and all of the fallout from Darwinism. Specifically, everything bad that comes out of evolution is hung on the notion of survival of the fittest, a phrase Spencer coined. Indeed, you can find scores of letters to the editor and blog posts by disgruntled Darwin fans angrily explaining that Darwin didn't invent that phrase, survival of the fittest, and so therefore he cannot be blamed for eugenics, war, or any other cruelty associated, or any other cruelty associated fairly or unfairly with the doctrine of evolution. Meanwhile, Spencer, who believed almost none of the things he is said to have believed, is responsible for everything bad that resulted from Darwinism it's an astoundingly weak argument. Some claim Darwin never even uttered the words survival of the fittest. While I'm not sure why that would be important, it's simply not true. Darwin just didn't say it first. Indeed, in later editions of The Origin of Species, Darwin replaced natural selection in some passages with survival of the fittest. The waters get even muddier still. That phrase was preceded by Thomas Malthus's struggle for the fittest and the struggle for existence. And Malthus was a major inspiration for Darwin's theory of evolution. Mar- Malthus is also a darling of progressive thought because his argument that humans cause scarcity is an infra- inspiration for all sorts of environmentalist and socialist and other sort of statist uh, management of resources kind of economics. Why survival of the fittest should be assigned the blame above and beyond so many other far more noxious notions and doctrines is beyond me, save as a way of passing the blame onto intellectual enemies. Its effectiveness as a verbal bludgeon cannot be denied because it is taken as a given by almost all liberals that there's a. Der- I shouldn't say that. Maybe I wrote that at the time. A lot of people just don't know this stuff, but in the. So, I'm not I don't want to do this some sweeping all liberals thing, but it is a commonplace among liberal historians and eggheads and op-ed writers to make this assertion, but not all liberals because all, you know, all, all liberals don't believe in any one thing. anyway, you get my point. So it's effective I'll, I'll just reread the sentence. Its effectiveness as a verbal bludgeon cannot be denied. Because it is taken as a given by so many liberal historians and intellectuals that there's a direct line from Spencer to Hitler, all because of that one phrase and the images of concentration camps that it conjures, mostly because people used to show the images of concentration camps when they would talk about survival of the fittest, thus creating the association in the first place. That's largely why Spencer may be the single most unfairly vilified thinker of the 19th century. While hundreds of millions have been killed by the faithful application of Karl Marx's ideas, Marx still enjoys a deep reservoir of respect and an army of apologists. And perhaps more shocking, Darwin is still found utterly blameless on that score, even though he was, in fact, the inspiration for a good deal of Marx's work. Marx reportedly wanted to dedicate Das Kapital to Darwin, but Darwin talked him out of it. This may or may not actually be a myth, I'm not sure But it is clear that Marx was deeply influenced by Darwin. Meanwhile, poor Herbert Spencer, one of the chief architects of what is today called libertarianism, is routinely denounced as one of the the most evil figures in human history. Now, I want to be clear before I go on. I'm going off the script again here. I'm not playing the game where I'm blaming Darwin for all sorts of terrible things. I think some bad ideas came out of Darwinism. I think some bad ideas came out of Einstein's theory of love. Relativity. Um, I have, a. have talked to about the podcast many times about how I think people, um, about certain ideas or books or arguments emerge and they become sort of talismanic for people and they give them permission structure to do, uh, what they really want to do anyway. Um, I don't think you can blame Darwin for, um, anything that was done Directly in his name, incidentally in his name. Frankly, I don't think you can blame Marx for all that much of the 20th century. I mean, I, I think Marx's ideas were evil, but he's not responsible for Stalin killing millions of people. Um, um, I mean, it would be nice to be able to slap him awake off of his cot and, in the afterworld and and show him what he had wrought. But, you know, you cannot blame violence of other people on the ideas of some people Unless it's like true incitement, go, go out and kill the Kulaks or something. If you wrote that, okay, you're partly to blame, but you get my point. Um, my only point here is that you can't hang all of these things on, on Spencer and not, uh, hang it on people who had vastly more influence on the things that you're attributing to Spencer. Okay. Anyway. Even more infuriating is the simple fact that American progressivism should be squarely in the dock for the ideas routinely laid at Spencer's feet. While Herbert Spencer was a laissez-faire liberal who wanted the state to mind its own business, um, ardently supported women's suffrage, and loathed, loathed slavery, many of the progressives and liberals who hated Spencer were committed eugenicists and racists. The economists at the heart of the of progressivism were all eugenicists. Charles Van Huys, the president of the University of Wisconsin during its Progressive Heyday, founder of the conference, one of the founders of the conservation movement and an advisor to Teddy Roosevelt, believed, quote, He who thinks not of himself primarily, but of his race and of its future, is the new patriot. He added, quote, we know enough about agriculture so that the agricultural production of the country could be doubled if the knowledge were applied. We know enough about eugenics so that if that knowledge were applied, the defective classes would disappear within a generation. The most famous intellectual at the University of Wisconsin was arguably E.A. Ross, coiner of the phrase race suicide, and one of America's leading raceologists at the turn of the 20th century. Quote, the theory that races are virtually equal in capacity, warned Ross, leads to such monumental follies as lining the valleys of the South with the bones of a half million picked whites in order to improve the conditions of four million unpicked blacks, unquote. The minimum wage, which I've talked about a lot on this podcast, was defended by progressive economists with explicitly social Darwinist language. The fear was that since black and especially Chinese laborers needed so much less to get by, the unfittest might survive at the expense of the fittest, i.e. whites. Or as Ross put it, the coolie cannot outdo the American, but he can underlive him. Raising the minimum wage to a white man's worth would help lock out the unfit and hopefully cause them to die out from destitution. Quote, no consistent eugenist can be a laissez-faire individualist, wrote the hugely influential British socialist Sidney Webb. Unless he throws up the game in despair, he must interfere, interfere, interfere. There's a tendency among liberal historians to claim that there were conservative eugenicists and liberal eugenicists. And the liberals were all decent because they just wanted to improve everyone's environment while the conservatives were cruel, Spencerian racists who wanted to weed out the inferior races. But while it is surely the case that there were racists on what passed for the right and even a few eugenicists, the more glaring truth is eugenics was overwhelmingly a phenomenon of the left. Remember, progressives saw eugenics As compassionate policymaking, not punishment, conservatives and classical liberals in their mind were evil because they didn't care enough about the poor to sterilize them for their own good. When the debate about eugenics was most active, the world's foremost opponent was the Catholic conservative GK Chesterton, while the most famous eugenicists were socialists like HG Wells and George Bernard Shaw and the guys at the Wisconsin school. One can see this divide perfectly in Herbert Crowley's effort to make peace between the two factions of eugenicists who were overwhelmingly on the left. This was not making peace between the two factions of, uh, of left and right. It was between what were called reform, uh, eugenicists, uh, it was between positive eugenics and negative eugenics. Anyway, here's, uh, what Crowley surely wrote in the New Republic editorial in 1916. The reason why I've struggled with this for a while, the reason why I I use a little bit of a qualifier here is that in the early days of the New Republic, the editorials, like lots of magazines, the editorials were unsigned. But I've read in Histories of the New Republic that Crowley basically wrote all of the editorials um in the early years of of the New Republic. And uh these views come closest to reflecting where Crowley was vis-a-vis the other major editors like Lippmann and those guys at the time. So anyway, this, regardless, this was the New Republic flagship Journal of American Progressivism in an unsigned editorial. That's bad enough. In 1916, I will read it here. We may suggest that a socialized policy of population cannot be built upon a laissez-faire economic policy. So long as the state neglects its good blood, it will let its bad blood alone. There is no certain way of distinguishing between defectiveness in the strain, as in like the bloodline, and defectiveness produced by malnutrition, neglected lesions, originally curable, or overwork in childhood. When the state assumes the duty of giving a fair opportunity for development to every child, it will find unanimous support for a policy of extinction of stocks incapable of profiting from their privileges. So think about that for a second. In other words, what he's saying is, once we get a fully realized welfare state up and running, we'll be able to pick out those who belong to the unredeemable stocks of the unfit from those who are unworthy simply because of poverty, and at that point, we'll be able to work on making the former group extinct through, their words, a policy of extinction. Consider Oliver Wendell Holmes, the Supreme Court justice who many people here know I rail about, who was an impassioned eugenicist and believed that, quote, building a race was central to his entire worldview. The revered liberal lion of the court authored the Buck v. Bell Decision, which held that the state had the constitutional right to forcibly sterilize unfit women. By the way, it was an eight-to-one decision with all of the liberals, including Louis Brandeis and Harlan Fisk Stone, concurring, and only the arch-conservative Catholic Pierce Butler dissenting. Anyway, Holmes later became a hero to progressives for his dissent in the Lochner decision, in which he mocked Herbert Spencer's libertarian views. The famous line that Holmes wrote was, the 14th Amendment does not enact Mr. Herbert Spencer's social statics. What united all these figures, from Crowley and Holmes to Jane Addams and W.E.B. Du Bois, and just listener note, I cut several passages that had quotes from all of those people and other progressives making the same point about how they were in favor of eugenics of one kind or another. Anyway, what united all of them was their adherence to what the liberal historian Eric Goldman calls reform darwinism but it was the libertarians who believed that the state had no role in choosing worthy or unworthy races who have come down in history as the racists and hitlerites it's really a bizarre reversal of blame and responsibility that has just been completely sort of memory hold and in popular intellectual discourse But anyway. This brings us to the poor robber barons, the rich and successful champions of commerce from the 19th century who put the guild on the gilded age. Now, I had, a, in the book, I have several uh, paragraphs, about, as I mentioned at the top, about the robber barons. We'll do a more in-depth thing about the robber barons another time, again, if this thing is remotely successful. But I got to talk about the robber barons just a little bit here to make this point. The argument about the robber barons goes like this. Darwinism arrived on the scene around the same time that American capitalism took flight. The robber barons, who were neither robbers nor barons, which we'll discuss, therefore must have been inspired by Darwin's theories to justify their dog-eat-dog theories of capitalism. We owe this argument almost entirely to Richard Hofstadter's book, Social Darwinism in American Thought, 1860-1915 which first appeared as his PhD thesis in 1938 and subsequently as a book in 1944. It was Hofstadter who argued that the robber barons had found an ideological rationalization for their rapacious ways in social Darwinism. Hofstadter writes, With its expansion, its exploitative measures, its desperate competition, and its peremptory rejection of failure— Post Bellum America was like a vast human caricature of the Darwinian struggle for existence and survival of the fittest. Successful business entrepreneurs apparently have accepted, almost by instinct, the Darwinian terminology which seems to portray the conditions of their existence. Other historians were quick to follow. Merle Curdy, in The Growth of American Thought, argued that, quote, social Darwinism. Admirably suited the needs of the great captains of industry, who were crushing the little fellows when they were vainly try, when they vainly tried to compete with them. Henry Steele Commager wrote in the American Mind that Darwin and Spencer exercised such sovereignty over America as George III had never enjoyed. And then there's our friend Robert Reich, who has regurg- who has been regurgitating these arguments with an almost bulimic regularity. Social Darwinism, he writes, offered a perfect moral justification for America's gilded age. When robber barons controlled much of American industry, the gap between the rich and the poor turned into a chasm, urban slums festered, and the wealthy bought off politicians. It allowed John D. Rockefeller, for example, to claim that the fortune he had accumulated through the giant Standard Oil Trust was, quote, merely a survival of the fittest working out of a law of nature and a law of god unquote and then then reich then adds that line i read at the top about how the modern conservative movement has embraced social darwinism with no less fervor than it has condemned darwinism it is less out of respect for the author than an admiration for the concision of the passages and accuracy that i singled out as an example For just about everything in it is untrue or misleading. Let's start again with the robber barons, that enduring boogeyman of the liberal imagination. In the 12th and 13th centuries, there were actual robber barons. These were European feudal lords who shook down unfortunate travelers um, when they were trying to cross through their territory. You know, there was like literally sort of highwaymen working for barons. In the 19th century, the term emerged as a catch-all for brigands, highwaymen, and carpetbaggers. After the Civil War, it was occasionally used to describe wealthy captains of industry, but it wasn't until Matthew Josephson's intellectually bankrupt 1934 book, The Robber Barons, The Great American Capitalists, 1861 to 1901, that the term stuck as a description of those leeches of the liberal imagination. Josephson was a relentless partisan for socialist economics, and his book amounted to little more than a comic book without pictures. His unifying message was to take seriously Balzac's dictum that, quote, behind every great fortune lies a great crime. He assumed that wealth was and is by its very nature felonious. Okay. Again, we're going to skip Robert Baron stuff, Um, but we have to ask the question. So what do the Robert barons have to do with social Darwinism? Well, pretty much nothing. Just like the robber barons themselves, Hofstetter, the historian who essentially invented the idea that American capitalism in the 19th century was inspired by Charles Darwin, never offered much by the way of actual proof that his idea was accurate. Hofstetter, look, I mean, Hofstetter is actually a great historian and some of his stuff I mean there's some of his stuff that I find incredibly useful to read and there's other stuff that drives me nuts um he was a great popularizer of some of the ideas of the frankfurt school marxists um but he was a brilliant writer um and you know you you just you, you it's sort of like l- listening to some shows on npr um or reading the new york times you have to be actively engaged with it because sometimes they he just tries to throw fastballs past you anyway he stretched out the broth and social Darwinism in America by citing a handful of anecdotes and then making sweeping generalizations about them. Thanks to heroic, thanks to a heroic effort in historical fact checking, um, led by scholars, Erwin uh, Wiley and Robert C. Bannister, Hofstetter's entire project has been dismantled. Quite simply, why well, I shouldn't say it has been dismantled. It's been dismantled for the people who have read what Wiley and Bannister wrote, uh, Hofstadter remains hugely influential and popular in, in uh, you know, elite circles to this day, and the fact that he got this stuff wrong is not widely known. But anyway, that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this. Quite simply, the robber barons were not inspired by Charles Darwin or Darwinism. They did not see in Darwin a rationalization for their economic philosophies or business practices. Not only was there no self-declared school of social Darwinists among academics and intellectuals the alleged beneficiaries of their teachings had little to no interest in the subject whatsoever. Let me say that again. The people who were supposedly the biggest beneficiaries of social Darwinism, these robber barons and captains of industry, had little to no interest in the subject whatsoever. Now, when you dismantle something, you do not destroy it in every particular. A dismantled engine will still leave you with a carburetor, a drive shaft, and that kind of thing. Similarly, the Hofstetter crowd can and do still cling to a few random quotes from second order figures who were parroting the vernacular at the time. Though it's worth noting that Darwinian metaphors were all the rage in the late 19th century and and, in every field. And they can certainly cite Andrew Carnegie, who is is a legit exception to the rule. He really was a true disciple of Herbert Spencer and a devotee of Darwinian thought. But the fact that Carnegie was an exception to the rule is of little regard to Hofstetter and others determined to attach social Darwinism and the robber barons at the hip. So certain it couldn't be otherwise, both Hofstetter and Reich eagerly identified John D. Rockefeller as a social Darwinist by referring to a speech where Rockefeller attributed his fortune, to, quote, merely a survival of the fittest, the working out of a law of nature and a law of God. The only problem is that the line is actually from a 1902 speech by, Do- by John D. Rockefeller Jr., the son of the pious Christian entrepreneur who, for the record, had no use for Darwinism. To be fair, Reich just simply repeated Hofstetter's mistake, and Hofstetter made many. Quotes about so-called natural law repeated without noting that there are references to the laws of physics or God. Not Darwinian evolution. Other references to evolution, say in Thomas Mellon's memoirs, are as, taken as endorsements of social Darwinism when, in fact, they're only relevant to religion. Now, look, when you think about it, the idea that businessmen were inspired by a then novel biological theory should not have even passed the smell test. Quote Gilded Age businessmen were not sufficiently bookish or sufficiently well educated to keep up with the changing world of ideas, writes Wiley. As late as 1900, 84% of the businessmen listed in Who's Who in America had not been educated beyond high school, unquote. Overwhelmingly, businessmen of the period were influenced by Christianity first and foremost, classical economics second, some self-help inspirational nostrums a distant third, And egghead notions about biology, almost not at all. Cornelius Vanderbilt, I love this. Cornelius Vanderbilt read one book in his entire life. It was the allegorical Christian novel Pilgrim's Progress. He didn't get to it until he was past the age of 70. He famously said, if I had learned education, I would not have had time to learn anything else. The response from informed liberals is often, well, yes, social Darwinism is a misleading term if you mean that it was a school of thought, but it does accurately describe the behavior of the robber barons, except that's not true either. To be sure, they were tough businessmen, but they were also some of the greatest philanthropists in the, in the history of the world. They created libraries and hospitals, conservation trusts, foundations, universities, and all sorts of general purpose tragedies. Now, why would they do that if they saw the world through this zero-sum prism of survival of the fittest? These men, or at least most of these men, took their Christianity very seriously. As Wiley notes, Christian ethics suffused the business world because even the well-educated were taught in an explicitly religious context. Robert Harris, the president of the Chicago, Burlington, and Quincy Railroad, might be a good candidate to be a social Darwinist if not for his expressed view that quote, as a general proposition, it seems to me that the strong should help the weak now by one course and now by another and in exercising authority to do it as we would wish it done to ourselves. That does not sound like red in tooth and claw survival of the fittest to me. Even the avowed Spencerist, Spencerian, I'm not sure, Um, Even the avowed disciple of Spencer, Andrew Carnegie, was one of the most spectacularly generous philanthropists the world has ever seen. At the age of 33, he wrote a letter to himself which read in part, The amassing of wealth is one of the worst species of idolatry. No idol more debasing than the worship of money, unquote. He committed to retiring at the age of 35 so he could dedicate himself to philanthropy. He believed that the man who, quote, dies rich, dies disgraced. He missed his deadline, but nonetheless became one of the most generous benefactors in the world, and he was a committed pacifist. Hostetter claimed that social Darwinism provided, quote, one of the great informing insights in the history of the conservative mind in America. But again, as Bannister painstakingly demonstrates, the truth is something close, close to the exact opposite. Liberals, progressives, and other champions of, quote, reform Darwinism were obsessed with Darwin and his theory's implications for society. It suffused their thinking in every respect, not least because it seemed so complementary with Hegelianism. And, and I should, when it, say reformed I say reform Darwinism, I really mean just sort of these novel ideas of evolution, because there was a lot of, Ferment back then. But anyway, and as a result, they projected their categories of thought onto their ideological opponents. Their obsessions with eugenics, with, quote, fixing society, with reform in all of its myriad particulars were driven by the great informing insight of Darwinism, or what they believed to be Darwinism. And in their consummate arrogance and cocksure beliefs that they were the heroes of the tale, they simply concocted motivations for their opponents. That did not exist. It's a familiar tale. All right, so that's the end of that. I don't know how people are going to like it. Hopefully, we'll clean up some of my my messes as we went. Um, let me know what you think. Let me know if you found it useful. Uh, let me know if you think it was a waste of of your to- your time or mine. Both are are, are be worthwhile to know. And um, and if you do like it or if you do think there's potential there, let me know. Um, what other topics you think would be fun to do? Um, again, I cannot devote the bandwidth to write stuff, wholly fresh, at least not right now to do as one off essays like this. I've just got a lot of other commitments, but, um, I can certainly, uh, mix and match stuff from the, the giant bin of my past writings and add fresh stuff as needed. I just wanted to try this out just to see how it, how it felt and, um, and see what you guys thought. And of course it can always get better. So anyway, thanks for listening and I will see you next time.